Thanks to this season's presenting sponsor, Kohler. They design innovative sinks and faucets for people who do their best work in the kitchen. This is reporter Eliza Rothstein, and here she is getting an order of ice cream. Hey, yeah, can I get one scoop of the sour cream and canned peaches in a cake cone, please? Thank you. Summer is coming to an end, but I keep the season alive today and all days by eating ice cream. Nothing is better than swinging by my local ice cream joint, getting a scoop in a cake cone, and taking a stroll through the city. You heard that right, folks. Eliza Rothstein, friend of proof and self-proclaimed food lover, actually orders her ice cream on a cake cone with a straight face, when waffle cones are so clearly the superior cone choice. Kevin, I like cake cones. We've been over this. They bring me back to my youth, and I love the airiness of the wafer. Now, Eliza and I have debated this cone question a lot, and it got us thinking, what if there was actually a right answer to this question? What if there was a higher power that could make a ruling on which ice cream cone is the best? It turns out, 40 years ago, there was a place where you could bring your food disputes to court. Today on Proof from America's Test Kitchen, why do we food fight? We're going back to the 1980s to a food court in San Francisco. We're not talking Sabaro at the mall. I'm talking about an actual court of the judicial nature. I'm Kevin Pang. Stick around. Hey, Proof listeners, I love kitchen gadgets that look cool and are a huge time saver. That's why the Sengoku Heatmate Graphite Grill and Toaster Oven is the perfect solution. This powerhouse packs in a ton of great features. The toaster comes with a handy grill rack, griddle pan, flat pan, and toasting net accessories. No need for oven mitts either, because the rack slides out when you open the door. You can cook, among many things, up to four slices of bread or one nine-inch pizza. And it'll cook them quickly with Sangoku's revolutionary graphite heating technology, which requires no preheating. Literally, it heats up in one second, no joke. The sleek retro design of the Sengoku Heatmate graphite grill and toaster oven is as easy on the eyes as it is easy to use. Check it out for yourself. Proof listeners can save 10% and get free shipping by using the code ATK10 at checkout. Just go to SengokuLA.com. That's S-E-N-G-O-K-U-L-A.com to order yours today. Reporter Eliza Rothstein brings us today's story. Is this the one Martinez loses as home of the Martini? Yeah, that's the one. This is Judge Mike Hanlon, or Padre Mike, as his grandchildren call him. He and I chatted over a bit of a muffled phone line. That's a picture of me (laughs) in the 80s with long hair. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, what's what's in your hand, Judge Hanlon? Martini. Martini. Judge Hanlon was a sitting judge in San Francisco courts, and midway through that career, he got an unexpected appointment. He was tapped to participate in San Francisco's Court of Historical Review. Back in the 1970s and 80s, bigwig lawyers and judges in San Francisco would bring this court to order once every couple of months. And in this court, instead of holding trials about crime or corporate malfeasance, they would argue about food. Disputes about bagels, donut holes, chop suey, martinis. I tracked down some of the lawyers and judges who participated in these food trials to learn more. Here's Jeff Brown. Jeff was the San Francisco public defender for over 20 years before retiring in 2001. He was also a lawyer in a few of the cases argued in the Court of Historical Review. This was not a real legal forum, but it was kind of a legal format. 
and it brought people's uh, attention to some important historical issues and some not so important, but uh, it enjoyed great prominence in San Francisco and the Bay Area. I used to do mock trial in high school. I was a bit obsessed, actually. When I was done with all my actual schoolwork, I'd start prepping for these fake trials where I'd get to play the role of a lawyer and argue one side of a fake case. This Court of Historical Review was just like that, an extracurricular activity for San Francisco lawyers and judges. They would spend time outside of their actual work to prepare and gather witnesses and then argue these cases during their lunch breaks. In fact, at one time when I was involved in one of the issues, somebody raised the fact, what are you doing this on government time? And I said, I'm entitled to a lunch hour, all right? (laughs) I have to admit, I was thrilled to learn that this court had existed. I mean, if the Venn diagram of my life has food on one side and argument on the other, this weird 1980s institution where lawyers put food on trial is smack dab in the middle. I should note that this court didn't exclusively argue food-related cases. They generally explored any issue of historical or cultural relevance to San Francisco. So this included things like baseball scandals to mysteries about the architecture of the Golden Gate Bridge. But for the purpose of this episode, we're going to focus on the food cases. Not just what happened in those food cases, but what we can learn from them. The court debated questions that might actually have a findable answer, like where was the martini invented? And what's the etymology of the word hot dog? All the way to much fuzzier topics, like should chicken soup be called Jewish penicillin? Okay, wait, how do you even answer something like that? I know, that's what's so goofy. Some of these cases were dripping in history. Facts to rely on, San Francisco locals to weigh in, Others were purely for entertainment. Here's Jeff, remembering what it was like to be a lawyer for the chicken soup case. (laughs) Somebody dressed up as a chicken came in, and I I think that that just kind of added to the levity. It was one of those situations where (laughs) nobody was taking the thing particularly seriously. Everybody was having a lot of fun. So how did the court decide which food disputes to adjudicate? It all came down to the whim of two men. Bernie Averbush, and Harry Lowe. Well, it was founded by Bernie Averbush, who was a well-known publicist in San Francisco. The court was a PR stunt. Bernie actually created it in 1975 as a way to drum up excitement about a new police museum. So the first case the court tried was about whether an old police chief should have been fired. Over the next 20-some years, all the way to the early 90s, there would be more than 75 different cases brought before this fake court. Usually there was one judge that was uh, Judge Harry Lowe, who recently died, who presided over these issues. And it wasn't hard to get people's interest. So basically, you had Bernie coming up with the questions that would be debated and Harry presiding over the trials— Eventually, Bernie started tapping other judges to preside, like Judge Hanlon, who we heard earlier. But these judges would never really know when Bernie would sound the alarm. The whole thing reminds me a bit of Charlie's Angels. In the movies, the angels would just be hanging out on a couch, living their normal lives, and all of a sudden, they'd get this intercom message from Charlie, giving them a mission to fulfill. Good morning, angels. Good morning, Charlie. They'd have to snap into gear, do some quick research on their target, and take action. That's what happened here. Bernie Averbush would send a letter to a sitting judge outlining the food dispute he wanted them to adjudicate and the date on which the trial would take place. Here's an example of a letter, or a mission, if you will, that Bernie sent to Judge Harry Lowe in 1981. Dear Harry, Was the hot dog invented in San Francisco or New York or in St. Louis? Who invented the word hot dog? Oh, so that was actually a real prompt? It was. The letter then goes on for two pages to outline just a few potential origins of the hot dog. A Chinese railroad cook, a St. Louis baseball game, a group of Malaysians living in San Francisco's Mission District. The letter finally ends like this. 
We are prepared to present a series of expert witnesses to detail these various versions for the court to make a historical ruling. Sincerely, Bernard Averbush. So once the case had been set in motion, there would be some period of time for both sides to prep. And then on the day of the trial, the case would be adjudicated in a real courtroom. Judge Hanlon explains. We thought we had conducted just like a trial, that there would be a burden of proof and that they had to have evidence. And and evidence always is what you follow to get to a just conclusion. And that's how we wanted the courts to win, even though it appears we might have some bias by our, our history. Remember, Bernie Averbush had created this court as a publicity stunt for the city. So most cases had some bent toward San Francisco. Even with that bias, some judges really did want to uncover history or find a truth. For instance, in the hot dog etymology case, they brought in local linguists as expert witnesses. Judge Hanlon, when he presided over a case on the origin of the martini, told me that he really did rely on compelling evidence before ruling that San Francisco, not the neighboring town of Martinez, was the birthplace of the cocktail. That said, there were plenty of cases that relied on uncredible sources. For instance, in 1987, the court took up the question, who invented spaghetti? The fight was Italy versus China and featured two San Francisco chefs, Gino Birardelli for Italy and Joe Jung for China. Each chef prepared his version of the long noodle to sample. And even though the question of who invented spaghetti is legitimate, historians do study it, the testimony during the trial was far from serious. In the end, The judge relied on the words of the quote-unquote ghost of Marco Polo to give Italy the title. Uh, the ghost of Marco Polo? Yeah, this was a witness dressed up as Marco Polo. Clearly, the judge in this courtroom wasn't interested in actually investigating spaghetti origins. And honestly, reading about this particular case made me cringe a bit. There were some sketchy Italian and Chinese accent imitations, and at one point, the ghost of Marco Polo did an intentionally bad job of eating spaghetti and red sauce with chopsticks. According to papers, Gino and Joe were good friends, and the whole trial had a playful tenor to it, but there is no doubt that some of the performance tactics would not fly today. And beyond that, there are other big questions that arise from this kind of food origin inquiry, like... Which voices are listened to when determining food origin? Who's making the final judgment? Is it even possible for one group or culture to claim ownership of a food item? Turns out, this whole Marco Polo bringing noodles to Italy from China myth was created in 1929 by the National Macaroni Manufacturers Association. In a Washington Post article that explores the link between Italian and Asian cuisines, a professor of Chinese studies says that the China versus Italy narrative is way too simple. It excludes the influence that Middle Eastern and African traders might have had on the noodles evolution, not to mention that there are many, many types of long, skinny noodles. So when it comes to this court of historical review that often delivered half-baked results, one could ask, should this court have existed? Was it okay for the entertainment value of a food fight to trump the historical quality of its verdict? And who was being entertained anyway? These are important questions, but not the ones we're exploring in this episode. Instead of looking at whether we should fight, we're going to dig into why we fight. Because let's face it, we do fight about food. And I'm not just talking about people who like to argue about the definition of a sandwich. Though, at the risk of losing some of you, I'll cop to it. I am one of those people. I'm talking about fights linked to things like taste and eating habits. What's the best style of Thanksgiving cranberry sauce? Whether or not to fold a slice of pizza? What do we stand to gain when we argue with friends, family, and even strangers on the internet about something so subjective? And what about when the stakes rise as questions become less subjective? The Court of Historical Review did it all, from the mundane to the monumental. And we'll start by looking at the court's most famous food fight, a debate where cultural narratives were on the line, and one that actually ended up unearthing some real history. The case began in 1983, when Judge Hanlon, from earlier, got that Charlie's Angels-type mission. Dear Judge Hamlin, 
Who invented the Chinese fortune cookie? That historical dispute has long intrigued scholars and has resulted in a classical confrontation between the cities of Los Angeles and San Francisco, each of whom attribute the origin of the fortune cookie to enterprising restaurant owners in their respective city. The case itself was prompted by a bit of old-school food media drama. The food editor of the New York Times food section for years, from the 50s to the 80s, was a man named Craig Claiborne. In the 80s, Claiborne was running a Q&A column in the New York Times, and someone submitted a question about the origin of the fortune cookie. Claiborne published an answer, linking the cookies to a Chinese settlement near Los Angeles in the early 1800s. A few weeks later, Claiborne got a letter in response. This reader said, among other things, I beg to differ. So, there was some back and forth, and two months later, Claiborne published a news story. It was not in L.A., but in San Francisco, that Makoto Hagiwara, caretaker of San Francisco's Japanese tea garden, invented the fortune cookie. And with that, the case was teed up. Was the fortune cookie created in Los Angeles or San Francisco? And this time, unlike the chicken soup dispute, there was a chance at finding a bona fide answer. Well, my name is Louise Rennie, and from time to time, I was asked to participate in the Court of Historic Review. Louise Rennie was tasked with defending San Francisco in the trial. I was particularly intrigued by the question of the Chinese fortune cookie, because as it turned out, it was actually, as I argued, invented at the Japanese tea garden in San Francisco. Now, I had some connections to the Japanese tea garden because the Japanese tea garden was created by the Hagawara families. Louise was family friends with the Hagawaras, so she and her team were able to get written testimony from the Hagawaras about their early interactions with the fortune cookie. With the help of the San Francisco Public Library, I got my hands on this letter. It's from Makoto Hagiwara's grandson, George Hagiwara. Written on uh, October 25th, 1983. So that's just two days before the court came to order. Let's see. In this letter, he says, My grandfather, Makoto Hagiwara, introduced the fortune cookie at the Japanese tea garden between 1910 and 1914. The fortune cookie, called Uranai Senbei, originated in Japan, and fortunes were written in Japanese. My family made the senbei by hand in iron skillets over a charcoal fire and folded the senbei while it was still warm. We were the first to put in fortunes written in English. He ends the letter with this. Our family continued to sell tea and fortune cookies at our tea house concession until we were removed from the Japanese tea garden in 1942 and interned for the duration of World War II. Respectfully submitted, George Hagiwara. Wow. This was a powerful piece of written testimony. How amazing that George knew his grandfather's story and was able to write it down and share it as part of this historical inquiry. It seemed odd that the same court in which witnesses were holding up raw chickens and spilling marinara on their heads could also make a meaningful contribution to the historical record of a food. It made me wonder, who among us can play the role of historian? And what sort of evidence is usually relied on when having a historical debate? I wanted to speak with a culinary historian to get their take. I'm Adrian Miller, uh, the Soul Food Scholar. My tagline is dropping knowledge like hot biscuits. Adrian just won his second James Beard Award for his book, Black Smoke, African Americans and the United States of Barbecue, where he traces the origins of Southern barbecue. And not only is he a food historian, he's a former attorney. Who better to speak to about a court of quasi-law trying to get to the bottom of a historical food debate? Trying to do these things in court is going to be difficult because courts don't often admit hearsay evidence. A lot of my work is dealing with African-American foodways. And people uh, in the United States who are of African heritage, most of us 
trace our roots to the western coast of Africa. And we're talking about societies that were not about writing stuff down. It was about oral history and passing on oral traditions. This factors into the idea of who can be a historian, too. When there isn't a lot of physical evidence to rely on, it's people's stories, memories, family histories that serve as evidence when settling a debate on food origins. In culinary history, you don't need qualifications necessarily. Like, for instance, I'm not a trained historian. Like, I didn't go to college and get a degree in history. I'm a trained lawyer, and I have training in other things, but I didn't have that. So, to me, it's a matter of your ethics and your diligence. That maps with what we know about the fortune cookie case thus far. No one who played the role of a witness or a lawyer was a trained historian. They were people with connections, people with family stories to share. In the fortune cookie case, there were many different oral accounts shared. One linked the first fortune cookie to a bakery in Los Angeles, another to an international expo in San Francisco. But there was one person, the star witness really, who was able to tie multiple accounts together with historical context. Her name was Sally Osaki. Sally was a wonderful person. Louise Rennie again. Sally was my aide, oh, for many, many years when I was on the board of supervisors. And Sally had deep-rooted connections in the Japanese-American community. She knew the city like the back of her hand. Sally not only spent time prepping for the trial by speaking with the Hagiwaras, she got her hands on a smoking gun. A piece of physical evidence that, as we learned from Adrian, is rare to have when unearthing food histories. During the trial, Sally pulled out the original iron skillets, the exact fortune cookie molds the Hagiwaras had brought back from a temple in Japan in the early 1900s. With that, Sally requested that Judge Hanlon rule in favor of Japan, not L.A. or San Francisco. She's quoted in the Hokube Mainichi, a Japanese-language newspaper from San Francisco, as making the request, quote, for the sake of our cultural heritage. She says, our sansei, or the grandchildren of Japanese immigrants, actually do believe it is a Chinese fortune cookie, end quote. But in the end, Judge Hanlon ruled in favor of San Francisco. Shocker. And this, like many a food dispute, is a case where the result or verdict isn't actually the point of the argument. It's the stuff that comes up during the fight itself. Though the Hagawaras did make fortune cookies, we're not actually sure if San Francisco is the American birthplace of the fortune cookie. Turns out there was a Japanese bakery in Los Angeles making fortune cookies around the same time. If you want to get deep into the timeline here, journalist Jennifer Aitley has written a comprehensive history. But verdict aside, what this case did was popularize a piece of the puzzle, a data point to support what is now widely accepted, that the Chinese fortune cookie is actually a Japanese invention. Wow. So if the Court of Historical Review hadn't decided to adjudicate this food dispute, we might not know what we do about the fortune cookie. Seems like a pretty compelling answer to the question, why do we food fight? Totally. Having a healthy public scrap can lead to new information cropping up. Of course, you probably won't unearth a historical bombshell if you're just going at it with a friend about what the best pizza toppings are for your delivery order. But that's not to say you won't learn something. And sometimes, the fights about the small stuff can be just as riveting as the arguments where a bigger piece of history is on the line. And that seemed to be the case with the Court of Historical Review. Their food cases were popular regardless of the questions on trial. They were broadcast on local San Francisco TV and radio. They were written about in newspapers across the nation and beyond. Even a paper in Toronto covered a case. And while folks across the nation were reading about these food disputes, the court was about to take up a case that would once again put city pride on the line. We'll move over New York. A food critic from the New York Times says the best bagels are right here in California, and better yet, they're made in the Bay Area. In 1985, the court took up the question, which city makes a better bagel, San Francisco or New York? 
The sheriff's attorney at the time, Carol Silver, argued on the side of San Francisco. In my usual thorough way, I did some research and found essentially nothing that addressed this topic. I certainly had personal evidence or personal opinions since I had been in California for quite so many years and had eaten many bagels in San Francisco where the Jewish community was strong and where bagels were available from numerous bakeries. Throughout the case, the judge heard from ex-New Yorkers, then-current bagel bakers, bread scientists, rabbis. In the end, the judge gave a wishy-washy ruling. He said, There is no question that New York remains the home of the bagel, but the San Francisco bagel is at least equal to those in New York. So we live on with the unresolved question of whether San Francisco bagels are better than New York bagels or not. There is yet another article about the bagel and the rivalry between New York bagels and San Francisco bagels. Carol is referencing a New York Times article written in 2021. That said, as the headline, the best bagels are in California. Sorry, New York. (laughs) I live in New York. Despite the rulings from the Court of Historical Review and the recent article from the New York Times that gave San Francisco the edge on bagels, I had a feeling that a street poll in Manhattan would yield different results. So, I went out to test my hypothesis. Have you guys ever had a bagel from San Francisco? Uh, my sister has. She said it's nasty. I, I ain't never had it before, but I just, I'm from New York, so I'm going with New York. New York. It's, it's original. Damn, I've never been to San Francisco, so I'd have to go to New York. New York. Uh, of course, New York. Okay, have you ever had a San Francisco bagel? No, but uh, as a New York native, I gotta go with New York. New York. San Francisco. What? San Francisco. You're a liar. You're wrong. (laughs) Have you ever had a bagel from San Francisco? No, but I suppose they're better. Wow, why? (laughs) Because, you know, New York is gloomy. Mm. It's in New York. I guess I've grown up all my life to uh, eat these bagels here. So that's why I say that uh, they uh, taste much better. There was a small handful of people who tried to take an unbiased approach to the question, thinking back to actual taste or refusing to answer because they hadn't sampled both cities' bagels. I've never had a San Francisco bagel. I couldn't answer that question. The last time I was in San Francisco, I was like 11. And I did have a bagel, but I don't remember it that much. So I'm a little biased. Yeah, I think I'm going to say New York. Aside from these two conscientious poll takers, no one talked about the actual bagel to justify their answer. No mention of form, of size, of flavor, of texture. So... If some arguments about taste aren't actually about taste, that is, they aren't about what happens when food hits your tongue, what are they about? And why do we have them? When we come back, Eliza finds out what we really fight about when we argue about taste. Then we settle an argument in our very own proof food court. You deserve a kitchen that works for you. Kohler sinks come in varying depths and basins so that you get your perfect fit. Their workstation sinks provide accessories to support all of your washing, rinsing, and storage needs. All of Kohler sinks and faucets are designed to make your kitchen look its best while still getting your cooking goals accomplished. And what a relief that is, especially during the holidays. Visit Kohler.com to learn more. Hey friends, it's Kevin Pang. In past seasons of Proof Ads, we've interviewed some of the engineers that make OXO's amazing kitchen tools. 
But did you know that OXO also makes cookware? Their new carbon steel and stainless steel offerings mean there's a perfect pan for every dish in your repertoire. AT case picks for nonstick pans just got upgraded. The OXO Nonstick Pro is now also available in ceramic. And their tri-ply stainless steel pots and pans have amazing heat conductivity, which is great for fast and even cooking. They're also stain resistant, which keeps them looking new. Plus, they're oven safe, which is perfect when I'm making my favorite roast chicken. Find your tools at OXO.com. Right now, OXO is offering a special discount for proof listeners. Just use the code ATK15 for 15% off on OXO.com. That's OXO.com. OXO, better guaranteed. Imagine this. You've been asked to host a few friends last minute to reconnect and just hang out. Of course, you say yes because that's just who you are. But immediately after committing to hosting, you remember, there needs to be something to eat. Enter Veroni's authentic Italian charcuterie. Veroni uses high quality ingredients and slow production processes to illuminate flavors whenever you take a bite of their meats. The easy to open trays really come in handy when you're in a rush. And they even provide pre-made cheese and charcuterie boards with different pairing variations so you can mix and match as much as you please. So don't sweat your next get together. Veroni is here to help you save the day. For more information on the Veroni family's recipes, artisanal techniques, and meats, visit Veroni.com. That's V-E-R-O-N-I.com. And now, back to our story. After reviewing the files from the Court of Historical Review bagel case and analyzing evidence from my own bagel poll, one thing became clear. When food fighting about something as subjective as taste, people often look for other reasons to support their side. People care a lot about their perception of things as authentic, whether or not they have any idea what that word means. That's Margot Finn, food scholar at the University of Michigan. If you're trying to defend a sweet pickle on a burger is better or worse, you know, just to somebody who doesn't think that, like, what what grounds do you have? Well, you can say that it's more authentic to eat the sweet pickle or the sour pickle, or it's more natural, or it's more sophisticated somehow. And the choice of argument you use, Margot says, is going to depend both on who you're talking to and how you want to be viewed. It may have nothing to do with the actual taste of the ingredient or item. Back to the idea of arguing that something is sophisticated. The fuss over Obama eating Dijon mustard and that showing off, you know, proving that he's a snob or something like that, right? This was a political, or people tried to make this a political problem for him. So there's times we don't want to seem sophisticated. As you all know, President Obama is a real man of the people. And yesterday, he dropped by a popular Virginia restaurant to grab a burger with his pal Joe. Now, take a look at him ordering his burger with a very special condiment. Dijon Gate, for those who don't remember, happened in 2009. Barack Obama and Joe Biden walked into a burger shop. If you got, uh, like, a spicy mustard or something like that, or a Dijon mustard or something like that... For some, hearing Obama ask for spicy mustard means that he's funky, experimental, likes a punchier flavor profile. Maybe you think, ooh, I want to go to dinner at his house. For others, his request for spicy mustard means he does not know how to respect a classic. He's too good for a bottle of French's, and he most certainly is not a man of the people. Who eats a cheeseburger with Dijon mustard? (laughs) What kind of man orders a cheeseburger without ketchup, but... Dijon mustard. All right, I hope you enjoyed that fancy burger, Mr. President. Dijon Gate is just one example of how an argument about taste can actually be about something totally different. People weren't really bashing Obama's taste buds for liking something spicy in flavor or grainy in texture. It was about the type of person he was because of that preference. Or perhaps more importantly, the group of people he got lumped into because of that preference. We see this sort of group identity fervor come up in regional debates, too. Are you a true New Yorker? A real San Franciscan? This was the stuff of the bagel debate back in 1985. And according to my relatively unscientific street poll, 
It's the stuff of 2022. The Court of Historical Review isn't active these days. Though the court has died, our interest in public food disputes assuredly has not. There are fights on Instagram about the quote-unquote right or authentic way to make a dish. There are entire rabbit holes on TikTok and YouTube where you can just watch people react to what other people eat. One of the trailblazers of the food reaction craze was Kaylin Allen, who found fame through The Ellen DeGeneres Show. A dollop of disgusting, absolutely not, just like grandma. Is there sprinkles in a cake? <laughs> Are those SpaghettiOs? Mm-mm, not in that pie crust like that. What you gonna do? <laughs> you know what? This BS gotta stop. So, why do we care? Why do we care about what Kaylin thinks tastes good? Why do we argue about what kind of cheese belongs on a cheeseburger? Whether cornbread should be sweet or savory? Which ice cream cone is best? Especially when we know these are all just up to an individual's taste. Here's Margot again. I think people are interested in these things because taste is really important as a way of expressing our identities and who we are and where we come from, whether it's our region or our ethnic heritage or our gender or, or personality things. These are things that define us um, in, in relation to each other. And so, so I think, you know, people are curious about your preferences because they think they're going to learn something about you. And I don't think they're wrong about that. That actually played out in a conversation I had with lawyer-turned-culinary historian Adrian Miller. We were talking about his work as a certified barbecue judge, which we will get to in just a sec. In the middle of our conversation, we ended up getting in a bit of a tiff over food. We were chatting about the type of barbecue Adrian ate growing up. I would say that the style of barbecue I had was just kind of Southern soul. It was your typical African-American barbecue, pork spare ribs, chicken, and then um, hot link sausage, which is a coarsely ground spicy sausage. And then, you know, basic barbecue slash southern soul side dishes. So potato salad, coleslaw, without raisins, baked beans. Okay. Uh, before I ask you my follow-up questions, I have to share that I am such a raisin fan. I picked up on Adrian's raisin tone and had to share with him one of my favorite raisin dramas. A great example of the internet fighting over something subjective. In 2020, Drake had a birthday party, and someone published the menu online. On the menu was a mac and cheese dish with, among other things, raisins inside. Oh, man. Really? Like Adrian, most people on the internet were shocked. His mac and cheese had raisins in it. People are upset. They're horrified. They're disgusted. The most controversial issue of 2020, raisins in his mac and cheese. Would you put raisins in a macaroni and cheese? What, what? Yeah, yeah. Raisins. Bro! Meanwhile, I was intrigued. For one, I love raisins. But more importantly, the dish didn't seem all that wild to me. It actually sounded a lot like noodle kugel. Kugel is a Jewish dish I grew up eating at Yom Kippur breakfasts and other Jewish holidays. It's basically a creamy pasta casserole, often made with raisins. I shared this with Adrian. This was a way for Adrian to learn a bit about me, and it was even a way for me to think about my own connections to a particular food combination in ways that I hadn't before. Truly, I hadn't thought about why I might like this pasta cheese raisin blend before I felt the need to defend my taste to Adrian. And this got us talking about the value of these seemingly superfluous arguments. When we talk about, you know, should chicken soup be Jewish penicillin? You know, that raises a question. Okay, like, why would it be Jewish penicillin? And then that invites you to explore Jewish culture and then maybe understand why chicken soup is so important to Jewish culture. And there's a reason for that. Because food tells the story of a people. So listen, I'm with Adrian. Disputes about food, when they're approached with a bit of levity and curiosity, can actually be a way to bond. Not over shared experience, but by sharing a difference. You know, the other thing I would say is a consequence of somebody putting out new information and finding the truth is that it can make new connections. Like, I'll just give you a wild example. Let's just say somebody definitively proves that Southern barbecue is actually from China. To be clear, there's no data that currently supports this. We are just talking hypothetically. 
that would be fascinating because that just doesn't show up anywhere in the historical record. So how does that happen? I love people who are trying to find the truth, who are digging into the past, being as meticulous as they can, creating arguments and putting out interesting theories. The more that we have access to stories, to sources and other things, and we round out the story, I think it could lead to very interesting connections. And sometimes these connections show us something that we don't want to see. Something that doesn't line up with our own narratives of what's true or perhaps what tastes best. I know that I've gotten a lot of heat for not saying that barbecue is West African in origin because there are people out there that really want it to be from West Africa because that would be very empowering and would be a beautiful story. But I'm a person who's guided by the facts. And so that has led me to a different conclusion that um, it's from indigenous people. It's just so tricky these days because there are people who are heavily invested in a certain narrative. And if that narrative is upended, regardless of the motivation or why, some people are upset by that. And um, rather than trying to get to the truth, which I think is just an interesting thing we can all get to, there is some investment in certain stories remaining the way they are. I mean, think back to the fortune cookie case. Awesome that the verdict validated the Hagiwara's story about their family history, but in so doing, it also meant other families' narratives about being the first to invent or popularize the fortune cookie were wrong. And if this is a narrative you're connected to, that you've heard your whole life, one that you identify with, you might just decide that it's still legit no matter what the historians or the judges say. So too with taste. I could tell you that I like raisins and pasta, and you might tell me that you don't, and I'll say, fine, that's your choice, but really, I'm over here thinking that I'm right, and you just don't get it. Margot studies this phenomenon. One of the things that I am interested in is that we do have this sense that, oh, taste is subjective and you can like things and somebody else likes different things. No, that's all fine. And, you know, to each their own. But that is not actually the way it goes, right? We really think that there is something that we will call good taste, that some people have it, that some people don't. <clears throat> you mean like how people with good taste always choose a waffle cone? Uh, Kevin, you are so wrong. And I can't wait to prove it to you. Anyway, we've seen this idea that Margot talks about play out over this whole episode. TikTok reactions, Drake's mac and cheese, the bagel fight, Kevin's inability to understand the pure joy of a cake cone. Everyone thinks they are on the right side in a debate of taste. And usually, these taste-based food fights don't have an answer. Except when they do. Just so you know, being a certified barbecue judge is the best conversation starter I've ever had even though I've done a lot of cool things in my life, including working in the White House. People are like, oh, you worked in the White House? That's cool. But I want to hear about being a barbecue judge. I did want to talk to Adrian about this work because it falls into this conundrum category that Margot studies. As a barbecue judge, Adrian has to make a statement about what bite tastes best. And that statement has implications. On the competitive barbecue circuit, you know, somebody's making quite an investment of time and money. So depending on where that contest is, you've got to travel there, you've got to set up, and then you've got to start cooking, and then you've got to pay thousands of dollars for your rig, your barbecue rig, uh, the meat, you know, all that stuff. So, you know, you don't want to be cavalier when you're judging because somebody has taken time to do this and you want to honor what they put into it. Now, you know, the back end is it's got to be good, right? And I asked Adrian how he decides if the barbecue is good. I figured there must be some rubric everyone has to follow to ensure they leave their preference for vinegar sauce at the door and aren't swayed when a bite of meat reminds them of the way their uncle cooked it. Yeah, so I got to say, that's what really surprised me about becoming a judge is how much leeway there is on your personal taste. So really, it's just up to you. And barbecue competitions aren't the only space where we make determinations on what tastes right or best. Just think, restaurant critics, sommeliers, Michelin guides. America's Test Kitchen has cooks who try to find the best recipe or the best piece of gear for your kitchen. Regardless of whether you think these institutions should exist, they do. And they have an impact on people's livelihoods. So there can be a lot riding on the answer to these subjective questions. 
just like there is on the answers to food origin questions. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't have the fight. Unfortunately, in our time, if somebody presents a contrary view, there's automatic hostility to that. I don't think of it that way. I'm just an intellectually curious person. And so um, I appreciate somebody coming with a, a presentation of facts. And if it's sound, if it seems like they've done their homework and they're coming with a, a generosity of spirit and a desire to find truth, I love that. I think it's interesting to have a good back and forth. Is it unjournalistic to share that I was actually relieved to hear Adrian say this? I wasn't sure where the professionals I spoke with would land on this idea of having food fights for fun. Adrian wins awards for settling food disputes, those about origin and those about taste. Margot's work focuses on the impact that social class can have on our perception of what food tastes good. I mean, this stuff can be serious. And we've talked about that. Food fighting for family narratives, food fighting for money. But most of all, and even in those higher stakes settings, we food fight for connection. And on the face of many food fights, that's not immediately clear. When the fight pits side against side, country v. country, city v. city, family v. family, the goal of getting to a right answer or of winning can feel paramount. And that's one thing that the Court of Historical Review can teach us. The verdict, though there always was one with the court, was never the main event. Even in the fortune cookie case, the food fight that did bubble up some real history, the verdict wasn't even correct according to current historical consensus. The value is in, as Adrian says, the back and forth, the learning along the way. And with that, I'm wondering what I could possibly learn from Kevin's staunch support of the waffle cone. On this episode of Proof Food Court, which is the better ice cream cone? Arguing for cake cones, Eliza Rothstein. Defending the waffle cone, Kevin Pang. And now, presiding over the Proof Food Court, all rise for the Honorable Judge Mike Hanlon. Thank you. You may be seated. Ms. Rothstein, please make your opening statement. You have one minute. Thank you, Your Honor. One thing I know we can all agree on today is the joy of eating ice cream. But add a sugary waffle cone to it, and you've got sweet on sweet. It's too much. The best way to enjoy the sweetness of ice cream is with a savory cake cone. Second, the cake cone is structurally sound. It's the ideal blend of cone and cup. You get a vehicle you can eat with a flat bottom you can rest on the table when you need a break. And finally, the cake cone offers the best last bite. At the bottom of the cake cone, you've got this checkerboard grid, and each of those little boxes gets filled with ice cream as you eat. So at the end of the cone, your final bite is the perfect ratio of ice cream to cone. There is nothing like it. Mr. Peng, please make your opening remarks. You have one minute. Thank you, Your Honor. Waffle cones are the superlative ice cream cone. I base this on three criteria. One, no other ice cream cone matches the exceptional crunch that a waffle cone provides. Think about the soft creaminess of ice cream. The waffle cone's crunch is the perfect contrast. It's the yin and yang of ice cream. Number two, it's arguably the most delicious of the cone options. There's an appealing maltiness to the waffle cone that a sugar cone simply cannot provide. And with the cake cone, I find it completely void of flavor. It makes styrofoam taste like a peach cobbler. And lastly, the waffle cone is the only cone that can be freshly made in store. Objection, Your Honor. Has opposing counsel ever tried to freshly make a cake cone? I'll overrule that. Thank you, Your Honor. As I was saying before, the waffle cone is the only cone that can be freshly made in store. Find me an ice cream parlor that hand makes a waffle cone, and I will show you joy that rivals children's laughter. I rest my case. Eliza, you have 30 seconds for rebuttal. Thank you, Judge. Listen, some call it styrofoam, some call it the perfect amount of crisp. I liken the experience of eating a cake cone 
to the textural journey that you take when you've got a really good hoagie. You know when you let a hoagie sit for like an hour, it becomes better, right? The juice sops into the bread just enough. Same thing happens with a cake cone. It starts off crunchy, and as you're eating it... Pardon me for interrupting, but if you leave your cake cone aside for an hour, you're not going to have anything but juice. No ice cream. Your Honor, point taken. I was really trying to make a connection less so to the amount of time that a sandwich would sit and more so to the journey of the bread, right? So, so whereas a sandwich might sit for about an hour, I'd recommend a, a cake cone with ice cream sitting for, you know, just the five minutes that it takes to eat it. And in that small period of time, the wafer goes through a beautiful journey, kind of acting like a sponge for the ice cream. Um, and that's really, really what it's all about. Objection on the grounds of comparing ice cream to a hoagie. Well, I'll sustain that it, they're not similar so that you cannot compare one with the other. Thank you, Your Honor. You have 30 seconds. On the argument you go through a journey with a cake cone, well, that journey is a one-way ticket to Soggyville. And furthermore, a cake cone, and I'll risk my Catholic upbringing to say this, is like eating ice cream with communion wafers. No, thank you. Oral arguments have concluded. The judge will now render his verdict. In the case then of Rothstein versus Pang, cake cone versus waffle cone, the winner is the waffle cone. Yes! Unbelievable. There is no appeal. What? Thank you, Judge. All hail the waffle cone. Hashtag waffle cones are the best. This isn't over, Kevin. <laughs> this has been Proof Food Court. On our next episode, pineapples on pizza, delicious or a crime against humanity. I'm Bill Curtis. Until next time. If you like Proof, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen so you'll get new episodes as soon as they drop. And while you're there, why not leave us a rating or write us a review? It really helps other people find the show. This episode of Proof is hosted by me, Kevin Pang, and the podcast is made by the following cast of characters. I'm Yumi Araki, the managing producer. I'm executive producer Caitlin Kelleher. I'm Terrence Johnson, and I'm the associate producer. I'm Alex Curran Cartarelli, and I'm also an associate producer. I'm Vanessa Bartlett, and I'm the production intern. I'm Bridget Lancaster, creator and the founding host and producer. Scoring, sound design, and mixing by Matt Poynton, Chester Gwazda, and Anya Gzeshik of Ultraviolet Audio. Ryan Campbell of Signal Sounds composer theme music, additional music by Cal Forster and Jordan Pearson. Finn Margolis is our director of post-production, and our director of production is Diane Knox. Fact-checking and additional research by Angela Yang. Our proof food court announcer is the legendary anchorman himself, Bill Curtis. Special thanks to everyone who spoke to Eliza for this episode. Thanks also to Tim Wilson at the San Francisco Public Library for digging up historical records from the court, and to Alex Sherian, the Bay Area television archivist, for giving it a strong go at finding old footage from the court. Jack Bishop is the chief creative officer of America's Test Kitchen, and David Nussbaum is America's Test Kitchen's CEO. Thanks to our sponsors, Kohler, Oxo, Safisana, Sengoku, and Veroni. Proof is a production of America's Test Kitchen. <laughs>